2: I'm John Burnham Schwartz, literary director of the Sun Valley Writers' Conference, and this is Beyond the Page. On this episode, Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times journalist Andrea Elliott sits down with another Pulitzer winner, novelist and playwright Ayad Akhtar, at the 2023 Writers' Conference to talk about Elliott's book, Invisible Child, Poverty, Survival, and Hope in an American City. The subject of the book is a black girl in New York City named Dasani, whose story, told through the lens of almost a decade of Elliot's deep reporting, brings to vivid and devastating life the realities of how poverty and race and the moral failings of our institutions impact the most marginal among us. Elliot tells us about Dasani's life and how it is both singular and emblematic. She talks about her own passions for the deeply immersive journalism that is the hallmark of her professional life.
1: Good morning. (laughs) I wasn't hoping for a response. I was hoping for people to stop talking, but that's (laughs) But I'll take the response. Welcome to this 9.30 session. I'm I'm sure everybody here knows who Andrea Elliott is, but I'm just going to do it anyway. Andrea Elliott is a two-time Pulitzer winner one of the rare winners of Pulitzers in both journalism and letters, and actually, if you were not aware, good people, the first woman to do so in the history of the prize. I feel so fortunate to call her a friend. Please welcome Andrea Elliott.
0: Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> Thank you. I know, I'm, I'm, I'm so honored to be up here sharing a stage with you, and also maybe a little daunted, mm. I have to say. But, don't, um, don't
1: be. Don't okay. be. <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, so, I read Invisible Child six months before it came out, and from the first sentence, I was immersed, uncommonly immersed. And so, it was two and a half days that I lived in that book, and I wrote these words for it, and I just want to read them because they're incredibly heartfelt, and they really do convey everything that I, they feel about this book. From its first indelible pages to its rich and startling conclusion, Invisible Child had me by turns stricken, inspired, outraged, illuminated, in tears, hungering for reimmersion in its Dickensian depths. This book is so many things, a staggering feat of reporting, an act of profound civic love, an extraordinarily moving tale about the fierceness of family love, and above all, a future American classic. How did you do it? I mean, it's a towering human and literary and journalistic achievement. And that's a question I'm going to ask you over and over again in this session. How did you accomplish this? So let's start from the beginning. The genesis for this book began with five articles about a young girl named Dasani in 2013. It was a very memorable series. It was really the talk of the town when it was coming out in the paper day after day. How did you meet Dasani and her family? And and can you talk a little bit about the genesis of that sort of series?
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting as I was hearing, your words just now. And when I got that blurb, I think I jumped up and down. Like I was in the airport. I remember where I was, (laughs) my kids staring at me, (laughs) practically screaming like a lunatic, like, Oh my God, he likes it. The big thing I will say is that I've been doing this thing called journalism for more than 20 years. And there's just no story that took possession of me like this one. And it's just like, I just got on that train and didn't get off. For almost 10 years until my editor, Kate Medina of Random House, uh, hijacked the train and said, There's this fugitive on here named Andrea Elliott and her book is due and she needs to get off. I mean, it was like that, (laughs) right? What Um, year was that? That was, and then COVID hit. And so it ended up being nine years. So I met Dasani in 2012. She was 11 years old. I was standing outside her homeless shelter in Brooklyn trying to keep a low profile, which is laughable given how different I was, but I didn't want the Bloomberg administration, you know, our then billionaire mayor to know about my project. I was an investigative reporter for the New York Times and I was there to try to get inside what was, I think, a really big story and continues to be a big story, which was that there were 22,000 children living in the shelter system in New York City. And so we had this homeless crisis unfolding that we weren't really writing about. And... Yeah, and just Asani walked out with her mother, Chanel, and it was only in our second meeting that I noticed their names. I think it, it, and the names are really important, which we should talk about that. In the beginning, like most reporters do, you have this checklist, sort of the representative or a child representative of current trends in child poverty, whatever, whatever. And that list, thank God, it had just flown out the window by the time I met Dasani because she wouldn't have matched it in any way. And it's like the demographers, everyone was like, you know, the new face of poverty, multiracial, single mom, two kids from two different dads, hovering at the poverty line, working two part time jobs without benefits. That's the portrait. This was a family where the parents were married, which is increasingly rare, where the parents were chronically unemployed. It was a large family composition, eight kids, all of them, all 10, living, the parents and the kids, in one small mouse infested room in the shelter. The thing about her, and this is also the truth about anyone I end up following, because I do that. That's what I do for a living. It's a very weird job, as Dasani pointed out to me time and again. This is so weird what you do for a living. <laughs> You're just, like, the first year, fine. Okay, the first two months, first six months, and then the series runs. and. Uh, I can see you actually are, you know, working and this thing comes out. And it's the product of your work. But then it turned into a book and it's like year three. She's like, okay, this is just weird. Like you're always around. Her little sister at that point was three. And I remember she said, every time I see you, you in my house. And that, <laughs> I feel like she'd be on my business card. I'm in your house. Like, this is what I do. It's really strange work. I call it immersion for lack of a better word. You know, you immerse and you... You're not in control. You're not in control of the story. There's so much more so I, I'm so
1: fascinated. Tell me about that moment. So they were coming outside. Do you remember the moment? Yes.
0: So they were walking in single file and they'll explain it like we walk in single file. I later learned because that's how you protect yourselves right from the street and you show unity and solidarity and discipline. This is a very disciplined family. There's so much that I had to learn that I didn't know that I then learned with them. So many uh, preconceptions about the poor that uh, were corrected for me in their presence. What really struck me was Desani, in particular, as an 11 year old. She's 11. Couldn't stop talking. She just wanted. She was so loquacious and precocious and full of words, (laughs) right? And she just wanted to tell. Those words to me, which was a dream come true, because as a reporter, you are limited by what the person is willing to share. And so for a child, for any human being of any age, to be able to narrate their experience in a profound and moving way is rare. And she was funny, right? And we know that humor is a very high form of coping. She was making me laugh constantly, and she was able to reflect on herself, and she and then her mother is just this, probably the most fascinating person ever written about. So let me tell you about them quickly. Dasani Chanel. Those are both words that probably everybody here recognizes as liquids and bottles that are sold and that represent something. So that's immediately what struck me about them was their names. And embedded in those names was this much bigger story, which by the time that the series ran, which was the longest investigative project that I'd ever ran in the history of the New York Times, 30,000 words, I still felt like I had just scratched the surface of what the story wanted to be or needed to be. And so let's start with their names. So Chanel was named after the perfume, which her mother had spotted in a magazine while pregnant searching for a name for her daughter because that was the closest you could get to this other world this world of this perfume that she couldn't smell but she could see, that evoked this other life because she was in this very siloed experience of urban poverty in a Brooklyn that had yet to be gentrified where she rarely encountered a person of means. Then you fast forward to we're now in a new century, it's 2001, Chanel is pregnant with her first child, she's searching for a name and she sees it on the shelf of her bodega in the sty, which was her bedsty, that's how you refer to it her first thought was, who the hell pays for water? Like, that is the ultimate luxury, especially to New Yorker sensibility, because we're very proud of the quality of our tap water. But that just seemed like outrageously luxurious to her. And this product had just come out, right? It was Coca-Cola's new product. And, and the answer to her question was the people moving into your neighborhood, because Brooklyn was undergoing this massive change, meteoric experiment in gentrification that would utterly transform the experience of growing up poor, which was was Dasani's story, right? And so that's what I had hooked into was one person's name is taken from a magazine at a time when you couldn't access it, who then gives birth to another person's name, who is growing up surrounded by all these things that she knows are now out there, that she can see, that she can even smell, that aren't hers, right? And so it's, it really became to me this important kind of journey into what it means to be growing up in this city that was two cities. And, and the title of this book, Invisible Child, it comes from Dasani. It comes from her. And I think it's important to point that out, because obviously it asserts a lens. Mm-hmm. You know, so to an invisible to whom... And one of the great gifts of following someone for so many years and watching her grow up is is the passage of time and then being able to watch that kid at 11 and then at 13 and then at 16 and then at 20.
1: And texting with her this morning.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah for sure. It's more than a story. It's it's a reality for me, right? And so in the very beginning, she talked to me about her invisibility from the very beginning. She didn't name it quite the way she would later come to explain it, which is why it became the title. But in the very beginning it was, I'm little, she was very little, that's the other thing. She was feisty and tiny and like four foot eight, uh, the smallest kid in her class, but also the the fastest kid on the block. She could beat all the boys at pushups and pull-ups and um, she was on the honor roll. And just like this aspirational kid with this aspirational name, And she turned her tininess, I don't think that's even a word, but how little she was, she turned that into a superpower. She said, it helps me slip through things. See, because I'm small, I can can just get right into the door before the subway doors close. I can go unnoticed. And it was the unnoticed that got really interesting in our conversations. And she would talk about this over the years more and more in terms of how she felt unseen, right? And that she was growing up in this city of contrast, of course. You know, she was describing this very private thing, but she was also describing this very public relationship between her and her city. Right. This very public thing that was unfolding between the housed and the homeless, between the wealthy and the poor. Because increasingly it was these two extremes, right? Because this more kind of middle-class group had been hollowed out. And so that's why it became this title. And most recently she said, you know, I want people to read this book because there's so many people out there who feel invisible and who shouldn't and who should know what it is to have been me Mm -hmm. going through that.
1: There was a new wrinkle. There was a new thing that happened in her life. Yeah. What was that?
0: She had a moment of fame. I continued to follow her life. I was going to follow it wherever that led and write that book. Where that led, surprisingly, was not where I expected, which was to uh, some much better place. I think she quickly felt that everyone sort of forgot her story and moved on. You know, she was a kind of bruise in the reputation of Michael Bloomberg and a pawn for the incoming mayor, Bill de Blasio, who put her on his inaugural stage as he came in. And then, like, everyone moved on, right? And she... Here's also what happened. So materially, readers wanted to donate money, of course, right? Because you, you see something, you feel outraged, you're moved to action and I just want to point out that like, I think the reason people felt that was because they could relate to her. It's not because she was so different, it's because they saw themselves in her story right. and that is the power of story, is finding what's universal in it. So they came to kind of identify with her in that original series, which I hope was much more powerfully the experience in the book and then in a way her problems became their problems, right? So that's how you force them to eat the spinach of policy, right? He's like, okay, now you're interested? Okay, let's talk about homeless policy. Let's talk about the poverty rate. Let's talk about all these things that are abstract notions that you would otherwise be... Like looking for one of my favorite uh, reporters, Dan Barry, the New York Times always says that readers, when they pick up the New York Times, they aren't looking for what to read. They're looking for what not to read. (laughs) 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 They're looking for an excuse to bail, basically, like every story. Right. And then your job is to keep them on the page. Right. And so I think she kept them on the page. And um, and then they disappeared. People offered money. Legal aid stepped in. They said to me before the story came out, and I was an innocent in this regard. I didn't know what was coming. They said, you know what? We're going to set up a trust, because the Times doesn't get involved in this, obviously. We're going to deal with this. So they set up this trust. Tens of thousands of dollars came in. And here's like just like a good fact to know about the family. They offered the family a choice. They said, you can have this money. Obviously, you have to give up your public benefits, right? Welfare, TANF food stamps, the things that you rely on because you're now going to have income, or put this away for college and try to make things right slowly and surely, sort of, and this is a family that refused SSI, uh, disability benefits for their children, uh, which would have meant a boon financially for them for many years, even though three, at least three of the kids qualified for this extra money because they did not want their kids to carry that label that there was something deficient or wrong. They felt that they had enough unspoken or spoken labels imposed upon them. And many families are like that, but we we don't see that necessarily when we think about the poor. And so they said, no, we'll just uh, definitely put that away for college. We're going to stay the path. And so very little changed materially, frankly, for her. But one major thing did happen, which was that her principal, her public school principal, This was her second home. So that school was absolutely central to Dasani's existence. And her principal gave up on the public school system as the answer for Dasani, because she saw that it wasn't able to help her. It wasn't able to do enough. And so she said, I think, Dasani, you should apply to this boarding school. It exists to rescue poor children. It's called Hershey. It's named after Milton Hershey. It was created by him, the chocolate magnate, who left his entire fortune to this effort. It's the richest private school in America in Hershey, Pennsylvania, the town also that he created, uh, named after him, $17 billion endowment, and off she went, and we could talk about that.
1: We're being introduced to the atmosphere of the book in such a beautiful way. In my comments, I invoke Dickens consciously thinking of those extraordinary stories of the lower class that are burned into our larger cultural consciousness is paradigmatic. Stories that expose the ways society fails our poor, our disadvantaged, but also epic tales about human struggle, about human beings and the human journey at its most archetypal. You know, something you said outside just before the event was Dasani and her family are living in a reality where so much is stripped away and we here in Sun Valley, with our 401ks and our, you know, pied a and all of that sort of stuff, sometimes live at some remove from the base reality that yeah. illness or death loss can return us to to that experience. They're at that level of experience all the time, and that's where you were writing about them from. I think of Dasani's parents, Chanel and Supreme, who are dysfunctional parents, to say the least, not able to do some things parents should be doing, or at least that the reader of the book would probably be judging them for. But that was actually not my experience. I was so immersed in their human struggles and felt so vividly the intense love they had for their family. It was an act of literary transmutation. I found astonishing, all the more so because it's not fiction. It's reporting. Yes. You know, I was relating to them as characters, yes. then they had a durability and a dimensionality yes. and an, an inevitable surprise that you get from great characters, but you were reporting yes. things that you couldn't control. Like Absolutely. You, you couldn't control where the story was going, and yet it felt somehow that it had that kind of architecture.
0: Yes, I mean... Here's the thing about this kind of reporting is you have to accept that you are completely not in control of the process. The only form of control that you can impose on it is to write. Uh, It's like a sort of structure that then comes that you give to what is otherwise a totally unpredictable, unwieldy, chaotic, process which is the lives that I was following right they were going in every direction I mean this is why I wrote the end of this book on three different occasions and all three endings are in the book by the way (laughs) one ending comes about halfway through the book because things kept happening and new layers were revealed and each time I had to just show up for that and learn right and so God, there's so many ways to answer this, but, and this is what I really want to talk about with you, Ayad, because you, for lack of a better word, traffic in fiction and I traffic in facts. Uh, I use that word actually intentionally because in the beginning of this period, you know, Chanel, the Sani's mother, before she became a mom, was a high-ranking member of the Bloods, of her set of the Bloods because it exists in the East Coast. It did migrate through the prison system from West Coast to East Coast she was a dealer. She was a pimp. She had struggled with addiction. She was all these things that people are kind of horrified by. And, and so people would say to her or say to me, like, you know, she's a hustler, you know, be careful. She's a hustler. I'm like, have you ever met a reporter? (laughs) Okay. Like we're all hustling, right? In our own ways. We hustle for information. I didn't call her a character in the beginning in the very beginning i followed this arc that's a personal arc that's not really in the book it's a little bit there but of being you know entered into it as new york times investigative reporter andrea elliott which is like this otherworldly creature from the upper west side complete outsider with her business card et cetera, et cetera, and wound up as drea basically and so drea is like this mix of things and I've become much more comfortable with the complexity of what that means, of what it is to be in their lives and to be emotionally connected with them and to reveal my own humanity in the process and we can talk more about that. But in the beginning, in that other sort of mode that I was in, I referred to them as my subjects and then Dasani's teacher, who's one of the great people in this book, Faith Hester, who is just this shining light who wound up in the uh, shelter system herself, to show you the spectrum of people who wind up homeless, because she was quote unquote gentrified out, in her own words, of bed on a teacher salary. She said to me, I don't like the word subject. It sounds clinical, which she's right. I was like, but, okay, but I'm not writing fiction. I mean, what do they say in fiction? You know what they say in fiction. Character. She's like, well, if I'm not a character. I'm like, okay, fine, you're characters. I say character now. Okay, so when we think of characters, right, we think about protagonists and we think about antagonists. And Chanel, by all outward appearances in terms of fiction or fact, absolutely seemed like an antagonist, right? And she's really tough on her daughter. This book holds no punches. They knew that going in. That was the one thing I kept saying over and over It's like, share your life, but I'm going to show it like it is, which is a very imperfect process, by the way. But the thing about it is that if you laid Chanel's life out on a table, and she did once describe being written about by me and reported on by me as being like having an autopsy performed on you while you're still alive. (laughs) 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 She did say that like the best poverty researchers would say the victim becomes the victimizer. They wouldn't see her as an antagonist in a story. They would see her as like a, as a product of an antagonistic world in which very few people escape. And what you don't do is escape but what you do is you survive which means that you 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 hustle and you self-soothe and you fall in love and you get really angry and you pawn your gold teeth for some money because you cannot possibly see past tomorrow because you are so rooted in the present because you have to be because you're guarding your survival which is by the way what every single one of us would do where we are unlucky enough To be in that situation. And so I see the emotional through line of this book not one of pain so much as one of joy. And this is what I want you guys to get. Like, what I felt mostly in their presence all of these years, and by the way, that's one of the reasons I just couldn't leave was joy. It was like lightness of being was like just remarkable amounts of innovation, right? I watched them innovate their way through so many problems and laugh their way and crack jokes. And it's the world around them that sucks, but they themselves felt very relatable to me and a people whose story was so worthy of being known, but also not just known that something I could learn from. And one of the major things I think I learned was To kind of reconsider my own notion of what it means to be happy, to have succeeded. What is success? So tell us
1: what happened. So Dasani gets this incredible opportunity to go to the Milton Hershey School and basically change her life.
0: Yeah. What happens? So this is a school in Pennsylvania, as I said, about 2,000 students. They are grouped, um, starting pre-K all the way to 12th grade, in homes, real homes. They're like McMansions, actually, run by real married parents who are their house parents and who become a kind of surrogate family. And these kids enter into this sort of parallel existence. It's a separate kind of childhood that they come to embrace or not. Uh, The younger that they are when they arrive, the greater their chances are of finishing Sani landed there at a pivotal turning point that social researchers have identified as, as really pivotal, which is the age of 13. So she could have gone in either direction. At Hershey, all of your needs are met. You know, you get a full wardrobe, you get braces, you get swimming classes, you have tutors, you get to take ballet. The school has the amenities of a university. It also attempts to show kids that they need to expand the way that they see the world and the way that they behave in the world in order to access the greater world. So if that means you're coming from rural poverty, and this is really interesting because Dasani landed in a home with a mix of kids. Everybody was poor. Basically, Hershey wants to be the opposite of a legacy school. So if your kids qualify to get in, they have failed, right? They want you to exit poverty. That's the whole point. So all these kids are poor, but they're coming from very different experiences of poverty. So there were kids from Appalachia for whom, like, the wilderness was a place to forage and explore and find. Dasani was, like, horrified. She's like, bugs? No, I don't do bugs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying, you know. And, um, but one thing that all these kids had in common coming in uh, that the house parents shared with me is that they were very protective of their food. You know, it just makes me think of Michael Bloomberg and his attempted ban on the supersized sodas, which was something that Dasani's family would buy and share among eight mouths, right? Something that maybe got lost a little bit in the, the fight over sugar. But so it was everything from teaching them how to eat a certain way to the thing that really got to Desani's it really bothered her, which was to talk a different way, but was referred to as a code switch. That you go from talking hood to talking white is how she, a lot of people put it. Which is something, by the way, that we all do. Like if you hear me on the phone with like an official of you know City Hall, I talk a certain way. And if I'm on the phone with my 11-year-old, I talk another way. So we're always code switching. But the the message for her was you can't say ain't while you're here. You have to say isn't as if there's something wrong with ain't. And I think when she got there, she took off. She thrived. She jumped two grade levels ahead in math. She joined the cheerleading team. She was an athlete. Everything was going well. Um, things fell apart because in her absence, things fell apart. So when she was gone from the house, the family struggled in a way that they didn't when she was there. And this resulted ultimately in the children being removed from their parents and placed in foster care. And I think that that just hurt her, her siblings, the children of the parents. Right. Yeah. So
1: she went to Hershey. She starts to flourish. She starts to become the person we know from the first few pages she is for us. And then in the process, because as the eldest child and as this exceptional young person, this exceptional human being, she has been the tentpole for the family. And when she's gone, the family starts to fall apart. Chanel and Supreme, the kids, and then the kids are taken away. And she's in school.
0: And left with, of course, survivor's guilt, but also like truly the belief that were she home, this wouldn't have happened. And I frankly don't discount that. She was a third parent in that home. She kept things running. And like so many of like the most gifted kids in a family like this, this is the great kind of irony. It's like that the very things that promise to save them, the very skills are also what their own parents rely on, right? And so there's this choice that she faced going off to Hershey, which is like, you have to choose between your family of origin and the American dream. This was essentially the message.
1: In American literary terms, <clears throat> she's being offered a choice of being Tom Wingfield in The Glass Menagerie or George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life.
0: Right. I love that you keep finding the literary truths in here. But that's, that's how right. I
1: was relating
0: to this yes, book. Yes, yes, yeah, thank you. Um,
1: and what does she choose?
0: I want to preface this by saying that Mary Carr once said that the definition of a dysfunctional family is any family containing more than one member. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) we know this to be true, but most families, you know, we love them, most of them. I think that Dasani felt that she was being asked to commit a form of kind of cultural suicide. And hey, she'd spent the first 13 years of her life surviving all of these benevolent systems, or let let me call them systems with benevolent names that were supposed to help, things like criminal justice, child protective services, you know, these systems that had these names suggesting help, which were in fact systems that were truly antagonistic, if you're going to use that word, in her life. And in response to that, she found her greatest strength in the system of her own design, which was her family, that whatever happened, they had to stay together. This was her world. And to like be told, don't talk that way, think differently, don't behave that way, don't fight. I mean, this is another thing. Like We judge kids who fight. I mean, I'm a parent, right? I have two kids. I don't want them beating the crap out of other kids. I don't want them getting the crap beaten out of them. I came into the story with that frame, although they were very little at that point. They were one and three and a half. And Dasani, at that point, this is in the early days, was fighting every day. And Ruth Fremson, the amazing photographer, war photographer, war photographer, who was assigned to the series with me, she and I would break up the fights because we were like, (laughs) we love this kid. We don't want her fighting. And then it sort of like slowly dawned on me, like, what the hell are we doing? First of all, that's maybe once a week when we happen to see a fight, we break it up. But the other four times, we're not there and she fights. So is that our role? And also, like... Who are we letting off the hook by breaking up the fight? Of course we're making ourselves feel better because we don't want to see that happen. And then, by extension, we're letting the reader off the hook because we'll write that, and then the reader doesn't have to see this happen. But is that our role? Or is our role to show what's happening, right? And by the way, what is happening? What's happening is, from one frame, horrible fighting and violence. No, from another frame, which is Chanel's frame and Dasani's frame fighting is a rite of passage fighting is a point of pride fighting is self-protection fighting is your family name this was a very big fact of Dasani's life that I was missing by getting in the middle of it and so we had a meeting at the New York Times where we decided that we're gonna let the next fight happen and document it was like a meeting right like (laughs) like it was like 10 people are in this meeting up the chain Jill Abramson everyone like our job is not to intervene. But this is a kind of ethical stuff you're always wrestling with and then learning from, right? But the cultural suicide. So I think Dasani chose absolutely the right thing to stay alive in her heart, right? Which was her family. She needed to repatriate herself.
1: I, I would go further. I feel like in my experience of the book, which was just tear-soaked, I, I, you know, it's like that great Kierkegaard quote. Uh, Someday the screws of life will tighten upon you as upon a rack and will force what's truly inside you to come out And I think it's a great sort of paradigm for dramatic structure that the circumstances tighten to reveal What sometimes even the character does not know about themselves. That's a
0: perfect description of what happened to me writing this book (laughs) And I
1: want you to say something about it But I just want to finish this point which is that I experienced the expression of her character with such surpassing nobility that there was such nobility in her leaving Hershey. However dysfunctional it looked to everyone else, I felt the secret motivation. And I experienced it as a surpassingly noble act. Which then when I turn the page and I see Dasani's way, and I saw that chapter title that oh my god, now I'm gonna go into this undiscovered country of what life is like on her terms, coming back from what I thought Is the thing she should figure out how to do?
0: Which I bought into. I I just started sobbing again. I love that. Thank you, Ayad. The should. What was the should? We we all buy into the should. It's the story we tell ourselves about America, right? And it's a story that we venerate, which is you work hard enough, you make it. Um, And I think that that departure story, that the one who got out, the one who escaped is so ingrained in our consciousness, I was rooting for her to make it too, right? I wanted to see what this would catapult her to without kind of understanding that what DeSani would like is not to have to depart. She'd like to be able to thrive in place. Yeah. She'd like to have it both ways. She'd like to not have to abandon her community, abandon her family, abandon her place of origin, abandon her way of speaking, of loving the world, in order to thrive materially, uh, she liked both things. And that's the thing that I think, if anything, this book challenges is this escape narrative, this romantic kind of Horatio Alger myth of this is the answer. This is the way that if you work hard enough that you will make it out disregards What happens if you're Dasani, who who is an impossibly talented and gifted human being whose story is far more representative, I think, of poor kids in America, the vast majority of whom cannot make it out because the barriers are too great.
1: It's amazing. The book is forget- both a deconstruction of what you're saying, of our, of our <laughs> idea of what success should be. I knew
0: the word and- deconstruction would come up. Okay. <laughs> well, oh, my I god. I think Hernan
1: is here, so we had to we had to honor him with that. But,
0: but I, oh, yes. Okay. Yeah, yes. Yes, there
1: he is. <laughs> um, but it is, again, to sort of that idea that literary space, I think, is created by asserting a meaning and then negating it. You both deconstruct the idea of success and the book is a scathing indictment of our treatment of the poor. You do both
0: at the same mm-hmm. time. Yeah, it was thank an you. an extraordinary thank accomplishment. You, thank you.
1: Where is Dasani now? Okay. Are you Dasani, I know you're still in touch because I said
0: you Yeah, yeah, uh, we're very in touch. So Dasani was reunited with uh, now she's with three of her siblings and her mother under the same roof again after a long court battle. And one of my favorite moments because among the many things that happened was this moment after that that scene where Dasani stands up in a family court in Staten Island and argues her own case. She's always a fan of law and order. (laughs) So she's very, very convincing to the judge. I will just say this quickly about poverty, because people always ask me about, you know, what does this story tell us about poverty? Well, there's two variables that when they were missing from Dasani's life, completely changed her. And when they were reinstated, made it okay again. One of those variables is family cohesion, the ability to be with her family, which was everything. And the other was just stability, economic stability. So the presence of of cash of a roof over her head. And when those two things were missing, it was all bad. And when those two things returned, she became the first person in her family to graduate from high school, the first to enroll in community college, and she just became a home health aide. And she's working as a home health aide. I'm I'm so proud of her. But I'm also just noticing that she's doing this while living in the Bronx, feeling very rooted in her community and also in her possibilities, right, all at once. And I think that that's where the story needed to land for her, and that is where it landed.
1: How did you share this story with them did they read it how did they get it and what did they think of it when they experienced it
0: so they were very much my co-conspirators in in getting to the truth and so incredibly brave in sharing like the totality to be poor is to be surveilled which means like if you're writing about rich people it's very hard to find the paper trail It's the exact opposite when you're talking about the poor right it's just so many systems that are following you, that are surveilling you, that this is a huge trove of records. And they were really instrumental in that. And they were very helpful to me in the process of writing it because I didn't feel like I could show it to them until the very end, which I did do as part of the fact check with the understanding that I was writing it. I was the writer and I wasn't going to change things just because they didn't like it, but I wanted them to, I wanted them to know what was coming and I also wanted to get it right. And so, Dasani said, I'll read it. And I was like, I don't believe you'll read it because I have teenagers now and I know that they don't read. They do read, but they have a short attention span. And she's like, well, I mean, it's my life. I lived it. I don't need to read it. I was like, you definitely need to read it because if someone wrote about my life, it wouldn't be necessarily the same as what I lived. And I finally just... I basically kidnapped Asani and Aviana and took them to Virginia and I read it out loud to them over the course of five days. <laughs> um, Desani, I have a video of her reading the final paragraph out loud. She's, I was like, just read it. And in the video, she's like, okay, that's the last line. I was like, yes. And she's like, the last line. We're done. We're done with the book. I said, like, yes. She's like, hallelujah. And she jumped on the table and started dancing. And I think it's because she was so sick of my voice by then. But, but she and, did say, so. didn't she say truth hurts? Her mother said the truth hurts. Oh, her mother did. I still can't quite understand it. I don't know what it would have taken for me to ever let someone in for that long, but I'm just so grateful. And it, it's also because this is a family in a world for whom vulnerability is dangerous. It's not what you do right you keep the walls up and especially to the white i'm latina I'm also white you know outsider right and i have i'm i'm an outsider in so many ways right i came never experienced homelessness i had a graduate degree i worked for the new york times i'm like this completely other being in a world where if you're white and you're there, it's because it's your job. And you're either there to monitor or you're there to help, or sometimes you're sort of doing both. But you're there because you're being paid, or you're, you're not there because you belong, right?
1: right. Andrea, we've come to the end of our oh, time. sorry.
0: <laughs> this is why this book is no, so long. I'm sorry. Yeah, but it's, abso- it's,
1: it's all so absorbing. I mean, it's just it's the experience of the book. And we don't really have time for questions, unfortunately. Well,
0: you can ask me anything. But, I'll be walking around. You'll see but, me in the but way. But
1: I want to leave it with you. Is there anything you want to say that we haven't covered?
0: I think what I want to say is that I want you all to read this book, hopefully, if you, if you haven't read it, when you read it, to see that Dasani's story is America's story too. I feel like I cannot unsee what I saw. And so if there's one thing I want you to know is that if you read this, I hope that you also cannot unsee it, that it, it kind of like comes to occupy a part of your heart, right, and your brain that then is permanent. Because there's a lot to learn from her.
1: Andrea, thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you
0: so much. Oh
2: we hope you've enjoyed this episode of beyond the page to learn more about the sun valley writers conference please visit our website at svwc.com and if you'd like to support what we do please head over to itunes to subscribe rate and review we appreciate it very much i'm john burnham schwartz and thanks for listening